Welcome to the Complete Manager Makeover Podcast, a management training and leadership development platform focused on providing managers and business owners with practical compliance and employee relations tips, tools, and techniques for every stage of their career or business. Our mission is to slash the statistic that employees don't quit their jobs, they quit their bad managers. Not anymore, because we are transforming the human and human resources with the Complete Manager Makeover. So today we're going to talk about FLSA, Fair Labor Standards Act. You know, as managers, you are responsible to ensure that your employees or your team members are paid timely, but you're also responsible for ensuring that those employees are paid timely Uh, as it relates to the law. And FLSA, this was a law that was actually enacted in the 30s. And while it's changed slightly throughout the years, uh, the the foundation of FLSA has remained the same. When you look at things like meal breaks, rest period, child labor, and how long a child can work in the workplace, when you think about overtime compensation and the exemption status, whether you are salaried or hourly, all of those things and thousands of more regulations fall under FLSA. And it's important that you guys know this so that when you are managing your employees, when you're dealing with time cards, whether those are manual time cards and a timesheet in your organization or a digital timesheet as in your payroll system, you are still responsible as a manager, a leader of your organization for complying with the regulations of FLSA. Now, I think it's important to note that, you know, it's not my intention to make anybody a human resources expert, right? With 30 years of experience, I've had lots and lots of time to get to know some of this stuff, but even I still don't know it all, right? The regulations are just that long, but we're going to definitely talk about some of the few key things that it is necessary for you to know because FLSA is one of those laws where managers can also be held legally responsible for not complying. So it's not just the company and the organization. As a manager, there's some liability there for you as well. So when we think about things like minimum wage and overtime compensation, equal pay, child labor, you know, although you're not directly responsible for administering the provisions, payroll and human resources would be, you do need to understand some of those basic requirements and how they affect you and your employees. So today we're going to cover a couple things. First and foremost, the object of this training, or the objective rather, is to familiarize you with the number of requirements of FLSA. And by the end of this training, you'll be able to comply with the basic requirements of FLSA, including minimum wage, we'll talk a little bit over time, determine whether an employee is exempt or non-exempt and understand a little bit more about what goes into some of those decisions. You'll be able to apply those requirements to workers versus independent contractors. And we've talked about that in the past. And of course, we'll touch a little bit on identifying and observing uh, child labor restrictions. Now, every single state has a different um, pay rate or a minimum wage. So we're not gonna be able to cover 
anything from a state specific standpoint, because all of that could change depending on the state your employees reside. And in some cases, it may be even the county or the city within the state that your employee resides that regulates minimum wage. So we're coming at FLSA, we're coming at this law from the federal uh, perspective, okay? Obviously, you'll want to know more about what your state requires, because if your state requires a higher minimum wage than the federal, then you've got to be governed by the state regulations. Whenever the state overrides any federal employment law to uh, the benefit of the employee, then you've got to, re you know, uh, that regulation in terms of the state compliance is what needs to be adhered to in your in your company. So a couple of things, right? We know that, or we now know that FLSA, the Fair Labor Standards Act, regulates minimum wage and its overtime requirements. And for you know, all intents and purposes, minimum wage uh, or overtime is one and a half times the minimum wage, right? Whatever that is for your state. The hours of work is what we're going to talk about a little bit more as well and how to calculate overtime, right? It's important because for employees who might have more than one rate, wage rate, maybe I work in one department at $15 an hour and I work at another department and I'm coded at you know $17 an hour, but I'm an hourly employee, there's a calculation that needs to take place there so that the overtime rate is accurate, okay? So I'm not gonna be talking about the payroll side of things, that's not the purpose of this training. We really are just talking about uh, making you aware of some of these things so that if you are on that payroll end, it can start to get your thoughts uh, going a little bit, making sure that that calculation is being done, especially if it's a manual calculation. So record keeping requirements of FLSA are very important as well in that we are required to keep certain information in a personnel file, in the employee file. That includes the person's name that must match the social security number. It must also have address and rate of pay. That's why offer letters are often done in organizations that helps to create a record of what the employee agreed to being paid, how often, maybe bi-weekly or weekly or whatever your payroll schedule is. That's also a requirement of the FLSA among so many other things in terms of record keeping. But at, at that basic minimum, we wanna make sure that we have that rate of pay. In some states, you're, at, you're actually required to provide the employee with a government issued notification of what those rates are, the pay rates, the schedule, even how many hours, are they full-time, part-time? All of that is so important in the record keeping compliance. Now, when we think about exemptions from overtime, what is important to know is as managers, as salaried managers, right? Just because you have the title manager doesn't mean that you are exempt from the, the overtime regulation. That title in and of itself does not qualify you for the exemption status. There are various things that go into that exemption, not just what your job responsibilities are, but how many individuals do you have that report to you? 
In addition, there could be things such as uh, the independent judgment that you have in your job. If you've got to ask your manager for every single decision uh, that you make in the day that might remove that independent judgment. And of course, the FLSA looks at each job title and each job description uh, very carefully so that we know if that's triggered or not. When we come, when we look at that uh, exemption perspective, there are several exemptions. Uh, there's an executive exemption. There's a highly paid, highly compensated, right? 100,000 plus. There is the uh, administrative exemption. There's a computer exemption for those who are in computer-related positions, IT, tech, uh, not technical skills and things of that nature. Um, and then, you know, so we've got to look at what is the exemption and do they qualify? One of those tests are the rate of pay. At a minimum, a manager who we want to make exempt from overtime needs to be paid $17.10. So when you think about this in your organization and you say, oh, I want to make them a manager. Well, the first test is we've got to make sure their salary complies. We've got to bring them to that minimum wage for an exempt position. And then we have to look at each of the requirements for all of those different types of exemptions, whether it's administrative, computer, executive, technical, sales administration as well, uh, sales exemption as one as well. And we have to go through the tests. What do they do? What percentage of the time do they do it? What is their autonomy? What is their independent uh, discretion in decision making and et cetera and et cetera. So if you're ever interested in knowing what those exemptions are, the Department of Labor, DOL.gov, gives you all of those tests that you need to pass so that you can now say in your organization, yes, we can make that position exempt from overtime requirements. And then of course, there's child labor laws. In some states, child labor laws start as early as 14 years old and go up right through the age of 17. With the FLSA, that is the same uh, period of time or age requirement. So if you have individuals in your organization and you're looking to you know, uh, recruit earlier workers, uh, younger workers, that there's nothing wrong with that. But do know that child labor laws are very strict in terms of how often the employee can work if they're in a child protected category, um, whether they can work on a school day and how many days, how many hours they can work. And this is the only category from a federal perspective that requires a meal break. Surprisingly enough, the Fair Labor Standards Act does not require an employer to give any meal breaks. I know it sounds crazy, <laughs> but um, so we can have employees work, you know, eight or nine uh, hours a day with no expectation of a meal break by federal law. Now, of course, that wouldn't be a very good business practice. So, of course, employers uh, do provide meal breaks. And, of course, there are some states that make meal breaks mandatory. But if you're thinking about it from a federal perspective, there's no requirement there whatsoever. So... I think that's important because I know in my experience, I've had employees go, oh, but you're supposed to give me a meal break. No, not by law, but we do so as a good business practice. We want to be a good employer, um, but there's no federal requirement. Uh, and in most states, no, no state requirement, but you can look that information up. 
So I'll stop here for a moment and see, you know, that was a lot of information, a good overview, and maybe some aha moments taking place. What questions, if any, or what moments of understanding or new information have you discovered just in that little bit? And don't be shy. <laughs> I would say uh, we don't have to provide a meal break under That's federal exactly law. That's what I was going to say. I was taken aback by that as well. I'm yeah. shook. Yeah. <laughs> from overtime requirements for a manager, I, I thought we could just go ahead and work overtime. You know what I mean? Right, right. Well, when you're an hourly employee, right, there, there is from as far as FLSA, Fair Labor Standards Act is concerned, once a manager is exempt from overtime, there's no requirement for the employer to pay overtime any longer. The expectation is that the job gets done, whether you're working 40 hours or 60 hours, and there's no extra remuneration for that. That's why I think employers are so apt to provide other benefits to uh, overtime eligible managers. Some do comp time, some may do, um, you know, um, really we see comp time most of the time, you know, so that if they're working extraordinary hours that the operation that the employer is giving back in that way. But under federal law, it, there's no requirement, no minimum uh, hours, no maximum hours either, but not a very good business practice if you don't at least, um, you know, make sure your managers aren't working too uh, extensive because in, in fact, whether, you know, that, that salary remains the same year round, regardless of those hours going up and down. And in some industries, there's a slow season. I remember in hospitality, we had a slow season at some points. And so we could work 40 hours and maybe even 35 and that salary stays the same, but boy, when season hits, we're rocking and rolling with 60 hour work weeks easily. Um, but that salary stays the same. So interestingly enough, uh, that's just how the FLSA works and some of the benefits uh, to employers and some benefits to employees as well. So as we continue the conversation, I think that, you know, there's definitely a reason that you want to be able to understand and know about these things to be able to deal effectively with the wage and hour issues that might come up. Uh, what's important to to remember is that these determinations are very difficult uh, for the organizations, oftentimes needing, you know, expertise from a senior HR person or even an attorney to make those designations. Uh, and it's critical to the efficient operation of the organization. We don't want to just say, yes, let's make them exempt, when really they wouldn't pass the test as far as the Department of Labor is concerned. In addition to that, the Department of Labor and the IRS have completely different tests when it comes to whether or not an employee is considered exempt or non-exempt. But we'll go through a little bit more about that here shortly. You know, we also need to realize that, you know, these laws are very, very complicated and these determinations about exemptions, uh, may be difficult, like I said, to make because the law affects important pay issues, like I said, overtime, meal breaks, uh, rest periods, even, you know, we, we've got to ensure that we as the manager are complying because again, we are on the hook as well, if the organization is not complying with FLSA. The law affects employee compensation, and it also plays an important role in FLSA, Fair Labor Standards Act compliance. So I'll give you a scenario. 
you know, each of you as managers is probably responsible for at least one individual in your operation. And they, if they are hourly, they need to punch in, punch out, clock in, clock out. And that's an important part of your payroll process. We are responsible as an employer to keep a record, right? This is going on the record keeping compliance, keep a record of when an employee works and when they don't work. That is a, a basic fundamental of FLSA as it relates to hourly employees, making sure that we have accurate record keeping. Let's say for an example, that we use good old fashioned timesheets, right? They sign in, they sign out, they sign in, they sign out, they sign the end you know, of, of the document. There's a great written record of that, but let's say they sign in at two o'clock every day. Let's say they sign in at nine o'clock every day consistently. The Department of Labor is gonna look at that and say, there's absolutely no way that employee comes in at the same exact time and leaves at the same exact time every single day. It really does call into question the accuracy and validity of that timesheet. And that's regardless of whether it's a manual timesheet or clock, you know, an automated system. There's going to be some question about the accuracy solely because it's nearly impossible. And all that employee needs to say is, oh no, Mr. Department of Labor representative, I was told to sign in and sign out at that time every day and sign you know, for lunch at that certain period of time. Guess what just happens to our responsibility as an employer to keep accurate reflected records. And the Department of Labor is going to more likely err on the side of the employee versus the employer. It is our record keeping that must be exact, that must be accurate, and that must be verified and validated that allows us to be able to say, oh, no, 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 Mr. Department of Labor representative or Mrs., right? These are accurately reflected, you know, timesheets, time cards, the employee punched in and out and verified as such. So we've got to be careful uh, with knowing, you know, what is happening with our time card administration. In addition to that, because the law affects important pay issues like this, again, it is, require, is a requirement of ours to ensure that we have the accurate records. And of course, this is because we have the responsibility as a, an employer to pay accurately based on hours worked. And we'll talk a little bit about hours worked in a moment. Now, I mentioned the exempt versus non-exempt uh, provisions. Exempt employees are covered by the FLSA's minimum wage and overtime provisions. Non-exempt employees are the ones who we call on a day-to-day -day basis hourly. They clock in, they clock out. Non-exempt employees are usually considered as those who are paid, they could be paid hourly, there could be a per diem, uh, regardless of the hourly rate, they're hourly. And although there are some exemptions to that, highly skilled workers in the computer field and things of that nature, for the most part, when you are paid hourly, um, you are considered non-exempt. Exempt employees are not covered by the overtime provisions of FLSA. Those are most of the managers in this training. Exemptions are based, again, on job duties, responsibilities, and the minimum salary for that position. 
Now, when we look at minimum wage, we want to make sure that we're applying it uniformly. If we, and this is where equal pay will come, come up in, in a moment, uh, the application of minimum wage says, let's say we have an uh, you know, administrative clerk and the administrative clerk position has a very you know, clear job description. This is what they do, regardless of whether they're um, you know, male or female, African-American or white, Hispanic, or you name it, that is the job duty. It's important that we apply that minimum wage uniformly or the minimum wage of that position. If I hire one individual at $15 an hour, and maybe next year I hire someone else at $17 an hour, we've got to establish the reason for that difference. We as the employer have to prove or have to show if ever questioned that there was a bona fide, qualification, bona fide <laughs> qualificational application of that change, not because they were male or female. That's an important thing, to apply your wages uniformly. In addition to that, again, I wanna reiterate that there are state minimum wage and federal minimum wage. And again, if the state minimum wage is higher than federal, employers are obligated to pay the higher rate. Most of us as well, we need to post notices outlining the federal minimum wage and overtime requirements. You'll often see them in your organizations. They're these beautiful red, black, and white posters that are usually hidden behind something. You wanna make sure that those are prominent places so that employees can see them as they enter and leave the workplace. That in fact is a federal requirement for those posters to be viewable. And of course, if you don't have those posters in your organization, first check with your payroll company. They should be able to provide those to you at no cost, or the Department of Labor Wage and Hour Division also has them free of charge. So make sure you know the amount of your state's minimum wage, and if it's greater than the federal minimum wage, you've got to comply with the state minimum wage as it applies to your non-exempt employees or your hourlies. So I'll stop there uh, again and ask what questions or what thoughts, what new uh, you know, insight was gathered by that, that short piece, if anything. We have all of our posters up, right? We do, we do have all of our posters up in both locations. Yeah, I didn't know there was a federal versus state minimum wage. That's mm -hmm. something new. Yep, federal versus state. Awesome. So now let's talk a little bit about how that minimum wage kind of shows up in that Equal Pay Act. The Equal Pay Act was enacted to ensure, much like I mentioned before, that regardless of who is in the position, when we have a certain job responsibility, a scope of work, a educational threshold and requirement, whether or not an employee is male, female, or any other, equal pay has to do specifically with gender, with gender neutral um, pay, is to ensure that regardless of that, if, if, you know, if there's nothing else that's different about the job responsibilities and duties, that we ensure that whether they're male or female, employees are paid equal wages for performing substantially equal jobs um, under the Federal Equal Pay Act. 
if two jobs require the same skill, effort, responsibility, they're performed under similar working conditions, they are considered equal for all intents and purposes in determining wages. Now, if there is a variance, you better be ready as an employer to ensure that you can bring to the table the information why you're making that change. Maybe uh, the other individual has more education, a bachelor's versus a master's. Maybe they have specific uh, skill sets that another uh, position or another applicant or another candidate or employee has. You've gotta be ready to do that. And as managers, both now and in the future of your careers, you'll be determining when you hire individuals sometimes what that pay threshold might be. And so these are things that you wanna consider and take with you throughout that career. If there Lisa, are, sorry. yes. There, would, would one of those um, specifications be, I guess, more, more time in the position if they're two of the same? Yep, experience. Yep, experience can certainly make that difference. It has to be pretty substantial um, in terms of the differential, but yes, that could certainly be one of them. Um, and, you know, again, minor differences in the degree of skill required, you know, to do, to complete the job um, can't be used to justify a pay differential between male and female. They really do have to be quite substantial. So don't look at those minor differences. They really should be, again, pretty substantial. And then these pay differentials within a job classification, they are permitted because of maybe a merit system, right? We start two people at the same rate of pay, maybe one's male and one's female, the merit system or the um, uh, review is different for each one, thereby putting one a little bit above the other in terms of that. But again, be ready. That's why reviews need to be documented. That's why this documentation is so important. If you have a stellar employee um, and they're, you know, they're knocking it out of the park, they're, you know, hitting all of their goals and what have you, but for some reason that review is showing that are just average, that might be called into question if you're ever, uh, you know, brought upon to show your equal pay processes in your in your workplace. So uh, a seniority system, uh, like mentioned, could definitely be that as well. Um, but it's got to be a factor other than gender that makes a difference with that pay. So let's we love our over here. We're good. Yep, we are good. I we make sure of that. <laughs> absolutely. Um, and I got David out there looking as well. So absolutely. Um, so when we talk about hours of work, right? What constitutes work hours under the FLSA? How do we know that we've got to pay someone for the time worked or add that to overtime pay? The FLSA requires an employee, again, to pay the minimum wage for all hours worked up to 40 hours in a given work week. Now, again, we're talking about federal law. All the different states might have something slightly different, or many of, I should say, not all. Many of the states have something slightly different in terms of how they classify that work week. In some states, overtime starts after eight hours in one day, instead of the federal requirement of 40 hours in a given work week. And the work week needs to be seven consecutive 24 hour period. So seven day period is considered a work week. Most of which do, you know, 
employers do, you know, a Saturday to Sunday, or maybe a Monday through Sunday, if they're a, they tend to be a Monday through Friday work week, but it must be a seven day period of 24 hour periods that constitutes a work week, interestingly enough. And the work week, again, it doesn't have to correspond to a calendar week. It could be a Tuesday to Monday or Thursday to Wednesday, whatever the employer wants to do in terms of that work week, how it gets identified is important. What FLSA does as well in, in terms of record keeping and notice is the employer is required to tell the employee what their work week is. That's why the handbook is so important. There are tons and tons, hundreds of different notices that an employer has to tell an employee about. Would you rather give them a piece of paper for every single one or put it in a handbook and disclose all of the federally required notices? I would so you're saying we can require seven days of work? No, no the work week, as long as FLSA is concerned, is a seven day work week. An employer, yes, can have a seven day work week and say we work five days, you know, seven days a week, six hours each day. Um, right. You know, it, but be ready because if you have line staff or hourly employees that work that work week and it, it triggers over 40, then we mm -hmm. trigger overtime. that overtime compensation as well. But yes, the work week is defined by as far as FLSA, they're saying you need to select a seven day consecutive 24 hour period as your work week. How much time you work within that work week is up to you or how much you require from your you know, organization. But most people don't tend to go anywhere between that 40, 50, 60 hour work week because then that could call many things into question. One is retention of your employees. One is an attractive workplace, right? While they may be federally, requ uh, federally uh, regulated and what's the right word I'm looking for? Um, you're able to do it. There was a word I'm looking for. I don't know that that would make the best business practice. <laughs> permitted is the word I was looking for. While they may be permitted from a federal perspective to have somebody work seven days a week, it may not be a very good business practice. So well, that's, that's my learning on this slide. Yeah, awesome, awesome. Um, well, the work time also, uh, it doesn't include preliminary activities to get prepared for work, right? We kind of know this. I don't have to be paid for uh, driving to and from work, right? I do have to be paid driving to and from work if I'm making a stop for the employer on the way to work. That's what triggers the difference between when that time coming into work is paid or not paid, especially if we're talking for your for your non-exempt team members. And so it's important that we I you know I share stuff so that you go, oh, I've got so and so going to pick up you know some equipment on the way to this uh, you know event. If they're an hourly employee, that is compensable time hours that must be worked, considered hours of work, it's compensable time. Um, so there's other you know, situations where we have employees who are non-exempt, uh, they are hourly employees who might be checking emails on the evenings. Maybe you start to you know, organically send an email and that hourly staff member sends one back. Well, we've just triggered a situation where 
they just clocked in if they replied. So it's important that if you have uh, hourly team members that you are responsible for ensuring that they do not do any kind of work outside of their normal work day. Now, that's not to say that you can't tell an employee, okay, you'll work this many hours during the day. And since we know we've got XYZ happening in the evening, authorize that time, you know, an hour or two in the evening, uh, but realize that that will add to that 40 hour work week that might trigger that overtime at some point. So it's important that you manage your team schedules accordingly, so as not to put them in an overtime situation, should you not want to pay the overtime, which you have to pay anyway. The employee is always going to receive that overtime pay, but nothing stops you from saying, you know, Jane, I've told you before not to work outside of these hours. Once you clock out for the day, you're done. You can coach counsel and correct the performance, but you must pay the overtime time. In addition to that, waiting time. Time spent waiting to work is often compensable under the FLSA. Here's an example. The time an employee spends talking to coworkers while waiting for the machine to be fixed, right, must be counted as work time if I'm clocked in, right? If I come to work and I'm I'm waiting to do my job because of a down, you know, a, a down uh, piece of equipment or or what have you, or maybe people haven't arrived to the event for us to get started. If I'm there as a result of work, then that waiting time does become compensable. Now that's a bigger fish to fry, of course, I'm just giving you a few examples, but if that employee is ready and able to work, has arrived to the workplace, whether that be you know, at your location or some other location they've been asked to, to go to, um, any time waiting to do that work once they're kind of clocked in is compensable time. Now, if employees are completely relieved of duty for a period of time, that's long enough to use that time effectively for maybe their own purposes, running an errand, making personal phone calls, then that time does not need to be counted as work time. So it's a pretty tricky um, you know, stipulation to determine that waiting time or on-call time but definitely one that you wanna be aware of and trigger that phone call to your uh, higher up, your human resources department, your human resources representative to make sure that we're within the, the law of FLSA, depending on what's going on in that situation. Now, let's talk about on-call time and open that can of worms, <laughs> shall we? The criteria for evaluating on-call time is similar to that of waiting time. Generally, on-call time needs to be counted as work time only when the employer is required to remain on the employer's premises. Um, if the employee is allowed to go home but be on call, the only time that employee triggers work time is when a call occurs, right? When that person says, okay, now you've got to come into work, and that commute to and from work may also be considered compensable time if they're on an on-call type of status. Um, that can uh, vary based on what your individual policies are. I know I've had some organizations that had uh, call-in time pay. If you get called in, you are going to be paid for the time getting back at work and then returning home as well. Um, but there's lots of stipulations on that. Uh, again, reach out to your HR professional for guidance if you know those things are happening. 
And then let's talk about work-related travel time. Typically, we're again talking about our non-exempt hourly employees. Work-related travel time is typically counted as work time. When travel during normal work hours is part of the principal job activity or when travel is required from one job site to another job site, it is considered working time. We'll give you an example. Let's say I have two factories and I have a uh, machine repairist at the, the, the organization. The employee shows up, they're paid hourly. They show up at the first factory, they conduct their work, they finish their work. They know there's another machine to be repaired um, here at this factory. They travel from factory A to factory B that travel time is considered work time because they are traveling for the purpose of continuing work. And although commuting time, right, when we wake up in the morning and we're ready to go to work and we go to work, that's not counted as work time. There are some exceptions, but we don't have enough time to go through all of that. So I've given you a little bit of a case study. I've shared with you a little bit about how these things can be triggered just so that you know kind of what things to be looking out for as you manage your hourly team members, your hourly employees. So we're not gonna to talk too much about split shifts. We don't see that as often um, in most industries these days, but we do wanna speak about training programs, lectures, mandatory meetings. When we look at those kinds of things in terms of making them mandatory for employees, obviously making that time, training times, lectures, attending mandatory meetings, those are clearly work times because your employees are required by you to do so. Now, if we have a training program or uh, you know, e-courses like we do in the CMM membership, and they want to take those extra courses on their own time, that does not mean that it is work time. If the class, if the course, if the time is made mandatory by the employer, yes, it is something that needs to be played. If it's a voluntary time that I'm using for attending a training program, a lecture or a meeting, not mandated by the employer, it becomes non-compensable time, time not worked. So we wanna make sure that there's that clear delineation uh, to our employees about what we mandate in terms of training, attending meetings and things of that nature so that we make sure it's counted as work time. Uh, and that's sometimes even if the courses are, are, are not related to the job, right? If it's mandatory, it's paid. If it's not mandatory, it's considered voluntary and not time worked. Now, FLSA, Fair Labor Standards Act, does not require vacation time, holiday time, severance pay, sick pay, or premium pay for holidays in any way. And I could list them on and on and on. So let me repeat, federal law does not say that we must provide these types of programs. Employers do so, again, as a good business practice. I want to attract good employees. I want to retain good employees. And so they put in these programs so that when time is taken, that's not hours worked, they can be paid for those times as well. And we see that more in holiday vacation, sick time, PTO benefits, but they are not counted as hours worked. I'll give you an example. Let's say an employee takes, um, let me give a good example here, uh, you know, 
uh, 32 hours. They worked 32 hours. Now, FLSA says, or let's say 35 hours. Here we go. At 35 hours, the employee is paid their regular rate of pay. When they request that eight hours of PTO pay, when we add the 35 to the eight, we have 42. So the question is, do those other two hours now have to be paid at overtime? Well, I won't trick you and I won't slip you up. The answer is no, because PTO benefits, holiday, vacation, sick, they are not considered and not to be counted as hours worked. It's considered straight time pay. So if you ever get that question that says, oh, hey, I've got 42 total hours in this pay week. Why didn't I get paid? Now you know why, because PTO time, vacation, holiday, sick are not counted as hours worked. Therefore, they cannot trigger the overtime requirement. Um, now, you're under, again, you know, unless there is an agreement to the contrary uh, that your handbook says that you'll include it in overtime pay. I've never seen an employer do that, but you can. Um, you can always do more than the federal and state requirements. You can never do less. Um, so other than any agreement to the contrary, we see that with uh, union agreements, uh, union practices sometimes ha have that stipulation. We tend not to see it outside of any collective bargaining agreements. Now, I mentioned a little while ago that, you know, there's other times when an employee is required to be paid. Medical attention is one that I think we should definitely talk about. The time an employee spends waiting for and receiving medical attention in the workplace, again, key in the workplace at our direction during normal work times is when an employee must be paid for that time off. So what's that example? Uh, you know, we are in the age of COVID. Let's say we have a mandatory testing for all employees and we, you know, create our own little triage room there and, and make them test, you know, for COVID in our workspace because we're making it mandatory and it's at our direction, we're telling the employee to do so, that time now becomes working time. Interesting, uh, you know, fact, fact there. Uh, and then finally, you know, there's no requirement under FLSA to pay employees who report to work who, um, you know, but they're unable to work because of some unusual condition. I mentioned it before. The machine is down. We don't have the equipment. Um, you name the reason, right? There's no requirement, and usually employers call this report in pay. You showed up. You came to work. We didn't have the work available usually employers will have an, um, a, a report in pay, which means you reported in, thank you for coming, here's the pay. But there's no requirement un, under FLSA to do that. In fact, an employer could say, oh, thanks for coming in, but the machine is down, go back home. No pay is required. However, I do tend to see employers where that does can happen, do a maybe a two hour, three hour you know, report in pay. So make sure that you follow, you know, your organization's policies, practices. If you yourself are not familiar with the handbook, get familiar with the handbook. As managers, you have a responsibility to be that first level of information for the team that you serve. And so, yes, it's easy to say, oh, I don't know, go ask, you know, the senior leader or go ask HR or go ask the benefit manager. You as a 
valued manager, as a leader in your organization, and as a good manager in your organization should be that first place that an employee can get many of their answers to their questions. So we talked a little bit about calculating overtime. It's that 40 hour work week that we've got to, you know, consider and look at. So just be aware of that, you know, when an employee is at, at that 40 or approaching that 40, you know, if your organization is really um, uh, focused on not paying out that one and a half times, right? Be sure to use your operational acumen and know what your schedules are to adjust accordingly. Um, in addition to that, there's just a, a few other things, you know, distribution of overtime, required overtime, unauthorized overtime. I mentioned this already. When it, when, when it comes to best practices, you want to make sure that you, you know, you aren't saying, oh, we don't pay overtime. Well, if they work it, you'll pay it or be ready to pay the potential back pay of up to three years. If an employee goes to the Department of Labor and has a concern, the Department of Labor can audit your organization and pay uh, after an investigation up to three years back pay, right? Depending on if the employee has been there that long. Um, so you never wanna have to go through a Department of Labor wage and hour division audit. So being proactive and knowing what your rights are as a manager, knowing what your employee's rights are as well, and you know, adjusting and implementing accordingly is the best plan of action. And I mentioned before, you know, unauthorized overtime, you can say to an employee, you know what, we, we told you not to work overtime without authorization. This will be paid in your next check. However, you know, here's that corrective action form. We've talked about this before in coaching counsel towards decreasing that overtime, as long as that's an operational um operationally possible, right? We can't say there's, you know, 45, 50 hours of work to do. We make them work at all and then say, you shouldn't really be paid, you know, having overtime. Adjust accordingly, you know, your operations. Now let's talk briefly about rest periods. Rest periods, there's, there's you know, nothing in uh, the FLSA federal law that says, uh, you know, you, you don't have to pay them for meal periods, you don't have to pay them for rest periods and things of that nature. Now, here's the important thing. When it comes to meal breaks, your employees must be completely relieved of work. So if I'm on break right now, and I choose to do and take my break in the middle of my office while I'm working away and answer the phone, I am not completely relieved of duty. And that employee has the right to claim that they did not take that meal break and had to work throughout it. What did I say before? It is the employer's responsibility to prove the employee wrong. What records would you have that the employee did or didn't work through that rest period? Probably not a whole lot. So that's what makes verifying time cards, signing off on manual cards, if you're still using manual cards, using any verification processes your payroll systems have, ensuring that when that check, you know, is processed, depending on what, um, you know, execution, what acknowledgement is the word I was looking for, depending on what acknowledgement happens in your in your automated systems, those things are critical to make sure that an employee can never go into the Department of Wage and Hour um, and say, oh yeah, I know I clocked in and out for all of that, but I really didn't take it. 
a verified time card gives your organization the proof that it needs to give, you know, to because the onus is on us as an employer. Um, nine times out of 10, the Department of Labor will side on the employee because it is upon us, the employer and managers to ensure we have the proper record keeping to, um, to negate what the employee is claiming. Now, of course, you know, sleep time isn't going to be paid uh, as, as hours worked, unless, for example, you might be, you know, paid to, you know, be on call for 24 hours. Maybe you're, I know in some situations, I've heard the fire departments, right? They are sleeping, but they are technically at work. So there are very few times that sleep time is required to be paid. Um, if the sleep is uninterrupted by a call to duty, the interruption must be counted um, as work time. But for the purposes of most of the members in this CMM uh, training, sleep time would probably be more like a call for corrective action uh, than to be paid. So I would not recommend uh, that in any way, shape or form. So again, recording time is critically important. Time clocks are not required under the FLSA, but they should be used uh, to record hours worked, especially for non-exempt employees, uh, to keep track of those hours. We're not obligated to pay employees who voluntarily come in before and after. But again, we want to, um, you know, not have employees doing that, right? Oh, they came and gave me an hour free work. Mm -hmm. The Department of Labor job is going to go, oh, really? <laughs> right? So if your employee shows up to work early and they are in fact working, they need to be clocked in uh, accordingly. So there are minor differences between recorded hours and actual, actual hours. We, for the purpose of this training, we really don't have to go into a lot of that. But I think it's more important to just you know, know how important it is uh, for us to correct any discrepancies, make notes about what's changed. If an employee did not take a meal break, then we have to deduct that, right? We gotta take that out of our uh, timesheet systems and things of that nature. If the employee is not completely relieved of all work during that meal period, they have a claim against having been paid all of their hours worked. I don't wanna be on the end of that phone call if it's my employee and the Department of Labor is calling. So remember also that rounding time, if your payroll systems automatically round to the nearest five, 10 or 15 minutes, um, I would not recommend that. I would not you know, make this time punch the time punch, no more, no less, uh, avoid any of that rounding uh, so that we can accurately have a picture of what the employee is actually working. So keep those things in mind. And record keeping. Most of this falls on your uh, senior leaders, your human resources department. We've got to keep employee information. It's important that if you know an employee moved or relocated, uh, maybe they're, you know, uh, they recently become divorced and their emergency contact might change, right? We are required to keep those records, not necessarily of the divorce, but of the emergency contact uh, that is under OSHA, Occupational Safety and Health Administration, not FLSA, but still a record needs to be kept. We have we keep records about employment and earnings. If employees are receiving tips, that's a whole nother one hour conversation. Uh, minimum wage, minimum wage rates for each of those. And remember, 
um, employees who have a claim under FLSA, the wage and hour division of uh, regulated by the wage and hour division of um, the Department of Labor, we could see, um, you know, documentation and back wages if ever there was a claim up to uh, three years. So there's there's a lot a lot there. So I know we've talked about a lot. We've talked about minimum wage and equal pay, computing hours of work, the difference between work time and non-work time, compensable and not, rest periods and meal breaks and record keeping and so much more. But I am going to, you know, open it up for questions. I thank you for being here today. I knew this was going to be a long one. Hopefully we had a few things that kind of uh, are new learnings and just things to be aware of uh, because you are as responsible for FLSA wage an hour for your employees, just as responsible as your um, employer. So with that, I'll open it up for questions. Wouldn't that be, Lisa, wouldn't that be something that you're watching instead of the managers to make so, sure? Mm -hmm, great question. And, you know, I don't necessarily see when employees are coming and going. I don't necessarily see, I'm not really watching if an employee is working during their meal break or not. Your managers are your first line of defense on that because typically the human resources department isn't in the operation like that. Your managers are your first line of defense to keep an eye on whether or not employees are working through their rest periods or, or break times and things of that nature. Um, we do look out, obviously, you know, HR or payroll departments look at how to process the payroll, what time needs to be considered for, for um, overtime or not. Systems need to be accurately reflective of whether or not there's a PTO request that is not part of you know, the overtime rate. That, that is outside of your manager's control, but knowing when your employees are working and not working, if an employee sends an email uh, to one of your senior leaders at 10 o'clock at night, I would have no idea about that. That's why this training is so important. So that when that does happen in your operation, your managers are now aware that, hey, I either need to double back with that team member that says, you, you know, that, that email could wait until tomorrow when you're at work, right? Or find out what that work schedule is for that team member, that employee, so that when they do do that, they are clocking in accurately for work. Well, that's our show today. Thanks for listening to The Complete Manager Makeover. I'm Lisa Perez. If you enjoyed our show and want to know more about our community or training resources, search for us on the web, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn at The Complete Manager Makeover, where I invite you to become part of our community. Please leave us a review and share our movement to transform the human in human resources with The Complete Manager Makeover.